Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Hi, everyone. Welcome Hello. back. This is special for us because this is it's been a while since we recorded. So it has been a little bit. You're going behind the curtain here. We're breaking the fourth wall, I suppose. <laughs> I guess so. Well, I realized we, you know, we had a little recording break. The summer kind of came and went, although this isn't happening. This isn't going to be launching right when we officially came back from our break. But this is our first, like, actual recording after it. So I apologize to all the listeners who uh, might be like, oh, you've been back for weeks. Right. <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird time in this 2020. We're all doing the best we can. <laughs> Uh, exactly. But as always, we have a great guest lined up for you guys. Maria Davis Perrier. See, I knew I was going to mess it up. I always do this. I get in my head. How do you pronounce it, Maria? Maria Davis Pierre. Pierre. There we go. I was trying to get fancy with it, like the drink, I suppose. <laughs> I get too much in my head. I'm going to let her kind of give a little bit of her background, but we're excited because she really focuses on helping. You are a therapist and you've helped I assume, so many families in the Black community that have children on the spectrum. Maria, how did you find yourself in this line of work? So I have a now eight-year-old who is autistic. My oldest daughter, our oldest daughter, Malia, is autistic. And being on the parent side of things rather than the professional side of things, the gap is what I noticed the most when uh, servicing Black families, um, you know, just paying any kind of attention to back, uh, black families, any representation of black families, all of those gaps. So I wanted to fill those gaps and bridge those gaps with autism and black. That's incredible. And I think one of the great things about what you offer is that educational component in the sense of spreading that awareness, spreading that similar to Amanda and I always say we like to start the conversation Uh because enough of these conversations are not happening. And we've seen, you know, civil unrest, obviously, during this year, we've seen amazing people step up and really, you know, use their civil liberties of protesting and really, you know, finally standing up for human rights. And, you know, Amanda and I, it's a challenging time for us, because I feel like if this was maybe three, four years ago, we would be in the streets. We would have been taking it. But a lot yeah. has changed since then. We both have young. I have a toddler and Amanda has an infant. And we're still doing things. You know, obviously, our line of work is doing that. But I just find it so fascinating, everything that you've done in so far as that awareness component. Was that something you always thought, you know, alongside of treating these families that kind of be being that person that's able to spread the awareness about the issues that are within this community? I've always been an advocate for my community, even before working specifically with autism and Black families. My advocacy work has always been for 
black people, you know, stigmas around mental health, getting Mm -hmm. us, you know, into therapy rooms and showing that representation. So, you know, my work has always been for the black community. But once, you know, you have a child and that child has a disability and you're seeing, you know, that this is not just something that is happening to you, but it's more of a norm, you know, you kind of get thrust into that advocacy part of it and you you make a career out of it, at least in my case. (laughs) And you've had firsthand experience with your daughter Mm -hmm. and with, you know, seeing how the world is, I'm assuming from, you know, even though, you know, you're not on the spectrum, but your daughter being able to kind of not only show the world and that awareness piece, but you're really able to be present in there and see what she sees and kind of the world from her point of view in a sense that I think not everyone can kind of share that perspective if you're not in it. So I think it's amazing that you're able to kind of share your own perspective from it. I'm sure it helps your clients a lot. It's not Mm -hmm. just someone who's a professional saying, you know, I understand, you know, where you're coming from because you truly do understand. Exactly. And I think that's what, in a large part, has made autism and black so successful is that I'm a parent, a black parent who is very vocal about having a autistic child and having no shame in that. And I think that is the part that a lot of black families want to get to because in our community, there's so much shame and stigma associated with certain disabilities, you know, and it's hard. So when you see somebody who's on a platform and they're just sharing their perspective of what's going on and kind of taking that shame and that fear away, you know, I think it makes it easier for families. It's the normalization aspect of it, right? You, so many people are having the same types of experiences, but when there are taboos uh, associated with that, even at a basic level of becoming a new mom <laughs> you know you, you get the same tropes of oh you don't sleep and this and anything no one really talks about the mother being born right especially with our generation of women that you know we're told you know you can do anything and we're in the workforce and you can have it all and it's like yeah no like <laughs> you may be able to have it all maybe not it's at hard. the same time yeah but it's hard and I don't think that enough people talk about it and I think that You know, you being in kind of echoing what Amanda was saying in that firsthand experience, I'm sure goes a long way because you could say to a parent, I've been in that IEP meeting where they say this, right? A similar experience happened to me and and you're able to bring that to the table. What is the number one thing that you think if there is a pattern? Amanda and I see different patterns of different things, but is there one thing that you see that is common when there is a black child on the spectrum and not providing X, Y, and Z service or treating the family in a certain way, is there one thing that you kind of see or it's just, it runs the gamut? I mean, it does run the gamut, but one thing that I do see a lot of is black families not being heard, not being Mm. listened to. Mm -hmm. And those assumptions that come along with just being black, those implicit and explicit biases that, you know, teachers and school staff bring into the room. And it not only harms us as the parent, it affects our child, of course, because we're there just to advocate for them. But those stigmas come in and it causes a lot of issues. You know, there's systems that are in play in general when we're advocating for our child. 
if within the school system, add in the race factor into that, and it makes it so much more difficult. So that is something that we always have to kind of, you know, just bring up in the room. Like, you know, this is a black child we're advocating for, so things have to be done differently when advocating for them. Oh, and I'm sure it's something where, you know, there may be IEP teams or schools or, you know, organizations that, you know, mean well or or try to say, oh, well, you know, we're going to assess this child the same way we would assess all other children or, you know, whatever the case may be. But we do have to acknowledge that it is different and the way that they're treated in the schools are different. You know, we definitely see the disparity in, in many cases that we have particularly in students who are diagnosed a little later in their childhood. So not necessarily children of color who don't necessarily get diagnosed at the age of three, let's say. We do see in some communities in California where assessment sometimes takes longer for our black kiddos that they wouldn't necessarily be in the same way because there are those stigmas that, you know, I think it's important for people to talk about. And for, you know, we have case law out there that does prevent certain testing measures for children of color because of that disparity and but I think you're right that it is something that needs to be acknowledged more than just oh well we're not doing an IQ test or we're not doing we're going to test this way it does need to be acknowledged because everyone that's in that room especially if you know you do have a black child who's in a classroom with you know a white teacher or all the adults at the school are white I think it does need to be acknowledged so I think that's important that you bring that up and I'm sure it's something that you have to help you know kind of empower parents to do as well yes because you know when we bring up race tends to get a little uncomfortable for some people Mm -hmm. you know they don't know where it's going they don't they don't want to be like oh you know I'm not racist you know that's not us that's not our school but Mm -hmm. it's more about being anti-racist. It's more about mm-hmm. having that knowledge of that cultural bias happens, evaluator bias right. happens, you know, that's why in California, those certain IT tests can't be done on black children because of evaluator bias. Right. So we have to bring it up and bring it into the room and make sure those who are evaluating our children definitely know how to check their biases at the door. We're not yeah. saying you're never going to be biased because that's just not realistic, but be aware of the biases that you have check them at the door so that you can come in there and evaluate that child from a perspective that is not biased because that is what's harmful to us. That is what's causing such a high rate of misdiagnosis, underdiagnosis, which leads our children school to prison pipeline because, you know, those certain perceptions then come into play when you think it's just, oh, a behavior issue that this black kid has. And it's Uh a lot more than that. Do you find you have a lot of families that come to you that are hesitant to kind of be the one to bring it up? But I know a lot of times parents that come to us are always afraid of being, you know, the quote-unquote tiger mom. They don't want to be flagged as the difficult mom. I can imagine that even more so you might see that with, oh, well, you know, I don't want to be the one to have to bring it up. Yeah, most definitely there don't want to bring it up because they don't want any retaliation upon their child for one you know it's already difficult enough to be advocating for things that the school is not wanting to give you and then to bring race into that you know retaliation does happen 
a lot against black parents in the form of calling CPS, you know, weaponizing the SRO officers against our Mm -hmm. children. So there's so much retaliation that we have to be aware of and cognizant of that happens, you know, and that's a very fearful thing, especially when we're talking about police now getting involved, you know, Um, CPS getting involved. That's a very fearful thing. But, you know, there's also that kind of we can't win for losing in situations because it's when we don't advocate, then we're seen as, oh, that black parent who doesn't care. So Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, am I either way, I'm going to be judged for what I'm doing. So I might as well be judged for trying to get my child the services that they need. Right. I think that's something that we have been aware of. The school to prison pipeline, I can't tell you how many times we've discussed it on this podcast and the disproportionality of discipline against our students of color and what the different types of supports, you know, even if African black students are identified, you know, compared to their white peers who receive special education services, their white peers are more likely to be in a general education setting for longer than their black peers. And so it's the that labeling and pushing them into, you know, segregated classrooms, which is a special day class, but for the wrong reasons. And I think that that is what the civil unrest and upheaval that we've seen, it's trying to break that norm. And and for Amanda and I, during this pandemic time, we thought, oh my goodness, what an opportunity to take education and turn it on its head, right? We're in this unpredictable time, you know, uh, technology needs to be used, you know, we're really going to see great innovation. Be innovative. Yeah. (laughs) And it's been quite the opposite as the school year drags on. How have you, have you had to adapt your advocacy strategies or when you're helping these families kind of just get through this distance learning? How has that been? What have you seen? So for me, all my services have been online. So for me, I personally didn't have to adapt. It was other people had to adapt and me help them through this time. I mean, the distance learning alone as a parent, that almost took me out. Right, you know, right. trying to teach three children and two of my children have disabilities, two of my children are on IEPs. So there was a lot of concern about regression, not getting the services, mm-hmm. you know, and the difficult decision of, okay, they when in-person happens, you know, they need to go back because I'm not helping them, I'm being a hindrance to their learning because I'm not qualified to do this work. So, you know, it was a lot of mental health work that I was doing, not only with my clients, but, you know, the staff and the, and the teachers at the schools as well, because, you know, right now we're in a time where we're worried about a sneeze and what that sneeze could mean. So right. there was a lot of anxiousness happening. So it was a lot of more mental health work of self-care and, you know, talking about those fears, you know, on both sides, because that's really what everybody is concerned about right now. And then we have to then get into the advocating for, you know, education and the services and the accommodations and modifications. So, you know, first we had to tackle that, that mental health part of it for everybody. Yeah, it's an extra hurdle that, you know, many families have to kind of overcome, you know, 
normally have to overcome, but especially, you know, during this time. And we're definitely seeing access being even more of an issue, not just education, but to mental health. You know, we think about the students who do need maybe counseling um, or therapy services. And maybe, I mean, a lot of times the disparity does affect whether or not families are able to afford or have access to you know, therapy, depending on if they have insurance um, outside the home. So a lot of these children rely on school counseling, right, or therapy that yeah. they receive in school. And now that they're not physically in school, and, you know, as much as we like to believe that telehealth is accessible, because, you know, <laughs> the internet is everywhere, it's really not. There's so many families that you know, talk about, you know, the schools that are trying to get internet into these homes that don't have internet, and you know, computers in, but that's not just about the education. It's, you know, the mental health, the student who needs mental health support can't even access their education if they're unable to be in the right mental state to even get there. So access kind of has that double layer. Exactly. And then when we're talking about, you know, black families, that access is even harder a lot of times to to gain that access and then when we now think about the evaluations that that have to be done on these children who haven't been evaluated but now we have so many other factors that may come into that evaluation we're talking about racial trauma you know anxiety over the pandemic so how do we separate those things from what we're seeing when we already are dealing with a biased situation you know and just to be truthful you know the mental health system is as whitewashed as it gets you know the Uh dsm is created by white men on white men you know so it doesn't always help us because right. as black people because you know we're already dealing with these things don't look like they're supposed to look when it comes to us so then adding in these other factors that we have to deal with it's a very scary time because I'm like well I don't know how my clients are being evaluated and I don't know if they're taking it into in consideration right. the fact that just walking into my school and seeing the SRO may cause racial trauma for me and my child, you know, so I don't know how schools are dealing with it. And they are, quite frankly, not prepared on the mental health side when we're looking at some who don't even have an actual mental health clinician in the school system, or they have one that comes, you know, on a Wednesday, and then they have to deal with the whole school. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just not, you know, realistic. So there's people who are not getting service. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the statistic of the amount of schools that have more SROs on campus than school psychologists is appalling. Like we have some schools that have rotating SROs that are there, that so many of them are on campus all the time. And, you know, talk about how traumatic that can be for a child that they're roaming the halls. And I mean, we see you know, discipline being such a huge issue. And I think the topic of the police being so prevalent in everyone's minds right now, everything going on, one thing that I I don't see enough of is talking about school resource officers and talking about how much is affected with them being on campus and how different schools are when they're not on campus. And I think the everyday person doesn't realize that. And so out here at LAUSD, Los Angeles Unified School District, which is one of the largest school districts in the country, 
there's been a big push for decreasing and defunding public school resource officers. And a lot of people that are, you know, against the funding the police have kind of talked about, oh, we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that. But they don't realize what SROs do and don't do and why they were even put in place in the first place. I mean, we know that many of them were put in place to prevent school shootings and how many of them have they prevented, but how much destruction have they caused instead? Exactly. And that's the concern because one, we already know that, and nothing against teachers because I love teachers, but we know that the training that comes with de-escalating within the classroom is not right. So the first thing that they do is they escalate it and call in right. the SRO right. officer. Which yeah. In a situation dealing with a black kid, that can make it 10 times worse because now Absolutely. we're dealing with anxiety, racial trauma. Right. And then, you know, right. I just made have who knows what kind of reaction because I'm scared. Right, right. So, you know, we know that having those SRO officers and then adding disability into that, that is, you know, something that is very scary, you know. So we know that they're not adequately adequately trained if we know that our community officers are not trained. We know our SRO officers are not trained. You know, I mean, teachers are you know, not trained on, you know, cultural sensitivity and things right. of that nature. So there is just a lot of lacking and it gets higher than the teachers because it's not their fault. You know, we're talking about districts who actually need to make sure that their staff is getting this training. It should be required training mm-hmm. that you're getting to be more culturally uh, responsive to the community that you serve. If your school population is 90% children that are coming from black indigenous people of color backgrounds and all your staff is white, they need to be trained on how to Mm -hmm. deal appropriately with the children and students that are in that school. Well, I think even just at a basic level, understanding children very rarely have, and I mean, most adults very rarely have the self-awareness or even the emotional regulation to soothe. So just at a basic level, understanding the fight or flight and why we see, you know, the escalation when an SRO, you know, enters a room and the child may have already been in an escalated phase. And and instead of trying to focus on breathing or trying to just get on the level, literally the eye level of the child, it's just like all hell breaks loose, right? And that fight, you know, at a very rudimentary level is, I see it with my 22-month-old, right? The frustration when she's not able to communicate effectively and not realizing that you can't do everything that you want to do, Blair, all the time. But I think that, like you were saying, Maria, at that level, throw in unique needs and especially those associated with kiddos on the spectrum and you have a whole new bag that you have to reach into and just even just for instance I just wanted to kind of touch on your journal your self-care affirmation journal I've been getting into affirmations and you know at first thinking like oh it's so silly you know you say a phrase and you know whatever and really you know the power behind it I love that idea because it's not something that you know a teacher would need a a whole week of training on right just mindfulness breathing techniques Mm -hmm. those are all things that are readily available I mean you could talk to you someone like yourself or go on Google Pinterest wherever to find that but when we do not have people in charge that are even thinking about this 
it just goes to the wayside. So that was my statement about it, but I wanted to talk to you about your self-care affirmation journal. (laughs) Tell me how you came about wanting to write this book for people. So self-care, especially um, when dealing with caregivers and parents to children who are disabled, it seems so unrealistic. You know, you talk about, okay, well, what are you doing for self-care? And they're like, oh, I don't have time for that. Right. Because a lot of times our thought process of what self-care is, is not really what self-care is. You know, we see on social media, people are lounging on the beach and, you know, they're taking a a week off and they're, you know, just living it up. And Mm -hmm. that's not realistic for a lot of families. And while that is a form of self-care, the type of self-care I'm talking about is more mental self-care. So setting boundaries with the people in your life, Mm -hmm. that alone, Mm -hmm. you know, is just self-care in itself, you know, being able to say no, being able to remove toxic people from your life, you know, setting those hard, fine boundaries with those in your life. And a lot of people think that you're doing that for the sake of other people when it's really for you. You set boundaries for Mm -hmm. your own Mm -hmm. peace. So, you know, that's how I came up with the self-care affirmation journal is, you know, helping families and individuals build self-care routines that are realistic to their own needs, whether it be five minutes a day or an hour a day, but just taking that time out to have some intentional time with yourself to set up a self-care routine and build that that foundation for yourself. Do you have a go-to affirmation that you're usually giving your clients or that you yourself use? Yeah. No is a complete sentence. Ooh, yes. Oh, I that love that one. My favorite one. <laughs> I love yeah. that. No. We have a hard time telling people no. Right. We do. We, yeah. You know, it gets bad and you feel guilty for it. Right. Um, you start explaining the, the no because. Exactly. And it's a complete sentence. And then the one after that is that, you know, I give myself permission to say no. Because mm. a lot of times mm. we have to give ourselves permission to say, it's okay for you to say no in this situation. And that no is a complete sentence. And you don't have to offer anything else other than that no. Um, and that's a powerful thing for a lot of people, myself included, because I find myself in situations where I'm explaining the no. And I'm like, no, the no is enough. I know why mm-hmm. I'm saying no. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I love that one. That's a good one. I don't think that people yeah, think that they're that simple. They really are just that simple. I mean, it, it can range yeah. Yeah, towards any kind of little saying. And, uh-huh. you know, you can't give from an empty cup. I always say that. And not as an affirmation, but just kind of as a prep. Or I find myself saying that to others. Or even just the analogy of, you know, when you are on a plane and those masks come down... What does it say? You got to put the mask on yourself before you can help someone else. And that is just such Mm -hmm. a great visual that I have to keep reminding myself about. (laughs) Because I think as women, especially, there is this persona, right, of being the boss babe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you run your own lot. And uh, uh, and it's just like, no, you know who needs help right now? Mom. And all people are saying is like, you're doing it. You're a superhero. You got this. And it's just like, no, I really need help. Can you help me? And it's just like, no, girl, you got it. And it's just like, no, literally, I'm drowning. Can you help me? So I appreciate um, it. And I think a lot of people perpetuate that too. I mean, being a new mom myself and going on, you know, Facebook mom groups and stuff. And I'm constantly seeing people talk about how like, oh yeah, it's 3 p.m. and I haven't eaten today and I haven't showered. And and Mm -hmm. my thought is, 
why didn't you ask for help so that you can take a shower? I mean, not that it's that easy all the time, obviously, but you know, I've noticed with me, like I have to prioritize, okay, hand over the baby for a second so that I can brush my teeth and I can eat. Because if I don't do that, if I don't ask for it, you're not always going to get an offer in life for anything, right? You have to kind of ask. And But I see so many moms make comments like that, and it's so routine now, and everyone just kind of goes with it, you know? And obviously, I'm only almost five weeks in, so it's still all very new to me. But I do see that a lot, and nobody kind of mentions, right? It's become commonplace that, oh, the mom just doesn't eat, the mom doesn't shower, the mom doesn't brush their teeth, right? But we have to be able to prioritize. No, this is one thing I need to do for myself in order to be the best mom that I can be for my child. Exactly. And building that support circle of friends who will be honest with you and and be like, look, you know, Mm -hmm. it's okay for you to ask for help. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes we need our support circle to be like, it's okay to ask me for help, you know, to give us that permission. Like, okay, I can do this. And having a support circle of people that are good for you that you know you can Mm -hmm. rely on in certain situations because motherhood is tough. And people don't talk about that side because there's so much shame with talking about, you know, the tough parts of being a parent. You know, people are like, oh, my God, I can't believe, you know, you're saying this or you're thinking this. Right. But in essence, it's these things that we should talk about because, you know, it is overwhelming and it does get stressful a lot of times because, the onus is on us as moms a lot of times and nobody's given us that break. So, you know, talking about these things that are so frequently occurring with parenthood is how we break, you know, these stigmas and these cycles. And I think that it's one of those things with so many of the stereotypes, the cultural perceptions that 2020 has tried to like this upheaval of all of that, right? We're forced to stay at home and really look at things in a very different way. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's something Mm -hmm. that you have done for the families that you service. And I mean, we could talk to you all day. Like, <laughs> I mean, we really could. And I love where I feel like this has been our own little session. As yeah. whenever we have a therapist That's talk, it. we tend to to get down that road. But exactly. we, I mean, we love it because you know we love having you know awesome you know experts like you on because it yeah. not only helps us in a you know selfish way, but we know a lot of our listeners can benefit from it too. And even if it you know gets them to think, oh, maybe this is something that I should look into. You know, we're doing our job. And Maria, with that said, where can people learn more about what you do, how you do it? Is there? A, I have your website right in front of you. I give you that opportunity. <laughs> So my website is www.autismandblack.org. On uh, Facebook and Instagram, I am Autism in Black. Um, I'm most active on Instagram. I also have uh, Facebook, which is Autism and BLK. And then there's the Autism in Black podcast that offers so many different topics about, you know, the black side of autism and what that is like for, you know, black parents and families and caregivers. And then we also have the Autism and Black Virtual Conference that's coming up April 1st through 3rd. So, you know, we'll be releasing more information about that as well. So we have a lot of things in the works, a lot of things coming out. And be sure to connect with me on social media or, you know, go to the website and get some resources. 
Yeah, we would love more information about that summit, that conference that you're doing. So that's just a personal plug that we'll follow up with you about that. (laughs) But Maria, thank you so much for your time, for your insight and all the wonderful work that you're doing. We're just so thrilled to have you on and that conversation was everything and more. So thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Happy to have been on the show. Thanks. All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that and we'll be talking to you next week. Take care. Bye. Bye.